The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten today in the month of Abib. You are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with, with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand, as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not, if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons shall, you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb. But all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. <clears throat> but God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Let's pray. Lord, we come hungry for your word. We bring so many things with us. Many heavy, many exciting. Uh, even simply the dreariness of the day, Lord, we long we long for your word to be spoken to us by your spirit, for you to give us life. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, as I offer myself to you in your service, that you would use the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart to bless your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Um, I don't know about you, but I've prayed for signs from God before. Um, can I get a witness? You know what I mean? Um, and sometimes the Lord does give miraculous signs. Uh, we have some great stories in our family about things the Lord's done, which none of us expected. And the end of the passage is exactly that, right? When God enters into the history of the world, he does it with a bit of flair, right? He has this column of uh, cloud and fire that's constantly in front of the people so that they would not miss it or doubt that the Lord actually is leading them out. But let's be honest. Most of my life is fairly ordinary. I wake up 5.30 or 6. I go hop in the shower, turn on the heat, start the kettle. I make my coffee and I shortly get to my armchair and I start reading my Bible and praying. And sometimes the Lord, I feel like, is super present and speaks to me powerfully and I am awestruck. Sometimes I'm just happy to be awake before the kids, right? Okay, a little silence, you know what I mean? Um, but there's other times uh, where I'm just tired. Like I still just feel exhausted and I'm just there. And I just want to tell you, um, I have not yet had God's glory cloud fill my living room. That's a confession. <laughs> uh, my life goes on largely as it did the day before. I do most of the same things every day. You know, this is one of the most exciting parts in the whole Bible. God's people have been enslaved and he shows up and puts his foot on the neck of Pharaoh, praise the Lord, and saves his people and leads them out in victory and then everything stops for two chapters. <laughs> and we get instructions on the Passover. And then we come to this passage and we get a yearly feast and instructions about what you're supposed to say and do and what kind of uh, dietary restrictions you're supposed to have and what you're supposed to do when you have a firstborn. Uh, what's this all about? All this ritual stuff is such a buzzkill, bro. You know, we were going good and then it died off. God pauses everything and he says, all of these things are to do uh, one thing. They are to be a sign on your hand and a memorial between your eyes. Literally like a headband. Israel is given a yearly practice to remember what God had done for them. In fact, if you know your Old Testament well, by the time we're done with Deuteronomy, God has given his people three yearly feasts to be a part of and a weekly liturgy, and a monthly thing to do, and actually a daily prayer service. You, you might know this passage from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh with your, your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise... You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now God's people have understood those commands, those words to command them to pray morning and evening, but to literally also bind these words on their head. In fact, faithful Jews for centuries, even up until Jesus' time, would literally take these words and put them in a box and strap them on their head and wrap their hands with these words when they came to pray. It's a ritual. God gives his people a daily, a weekly, a monthly, a, a yearly liturgy. So what is he doing with all of this? 
Why all this ritual? Why all this liturgy? Well, the answer is that we are formed into who we are through rituals, through repeated liturgies. They form us. If you think about a liturgy as a collection of rituals that we as a community do and participate both in heart and mind, but also in body, God is setting those up for Israel. And so I just want to talk about why God chooses liturgy. Why liturgy? What is that about? And importantly, God does not change. So what does he have for us here today in liturgies? So three things this morning. Why liturgy? What is the liturgy? And what story does your life tell? So first, why liturgy? You know, I think we all are very aware of a real danger with liturgy. It very quickly becomes rote uh, ritual, right? That you simply perform and you do the thing and, and then you don't care. And in fact, Isaiah rebukes the people of Israel. You might know this. Jesus quotes it. He says um, that the Lord has told him to say, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And if we're honest... Some of us like ritual and liturgy because we get to hide. So we react in the opposite way and uh, begin to assume that ritual is dead, empty, meaningless. Spontaneity, we assume, is what it means to be authentic. Anything truly deep, religious, spiritual, authentic must be, we assume, spontaneous, impulsed without any kind of prescript. And there's a lot of wisdom there, of course, but with most things, we take it too far. Um, and so we start to believe the myth that as Christians, as people, we are beyond ritual, beyond a regimented life. And as Christians, we begin slipping in to think that when Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for this, he's, what he's communicating is that he not only came to free us from sin, but to free us from ritual itself. But just think about this for a second. What does that say? Well, one of the things it says to us is that if our worship must be an utterly unique journey, then you must be utterly unique. Worship now becomes no longer God's ministry to us, but us making up stuff for God. He's asking us, how creative can you be? How much power and devotion can you muster up? I'm here to, with this text to say, uh-uh, not so. This is not the way we are meant to come to the Lord, and this is not the way the Lord interacts with us. We are not beyond liturgy. In fact, uh, this is all a great myth, because as Americans, we are highly liturgical and ritualistic people. I don't know if you're aware of uh, the American religion. We have four high holy feasts every year that we all uh, consecrate and dedicate ourselves to, body, heart, mind. Uh, the first is for the 4th of July. Uh, we have uh, elaborate celebrations, uh, usually involving hot dogs, if you're, if you're a real American. Uh, we have Thanksgiving, uh, where we re rehearse and reenact the Pilgrim uh, Feast. And we have a December shopping and present-giving uh, ritual that's often confused with Christmas, but it's actually very different. And then the final one is the most elaborate. Do you know it? It's the Super Bowl. Yeah. Uh, the Super Bowl is the most elaborate and costly liturgy of American religion. Let me just, let's just break it down. Attendees don their tribal vestments. 
And they brand themselves with the icon of the team. And when they show up, what do they do? They paint themselves in tribal colors. They actually paint their bodies for the great ritual of the Super Bowl. And they don't simply show up. They actually dance and they break a sweat and and they sing and they yell and they call on the names of the heroes. And great sacrifice is offered up at this ceremony. Great sacrifice. To attend this great cult, you have to pay at least $2,000 for one seat. Sometimes people pay up to $20,000. In fact, the cost does not end there. If we ignore simply the salaries of the people involved, one commercial, which we love, often costs $5 million for 30 seconds. Great sacrifice is poured out for this moment of glory. The players themselves actually enter into the action through a liturgical transformation. They wear street clothes, they look like us, but then they go through this metamorphosis in this underground tunnel, <laughs> right? And then they, they proceed out into the field and there's fireworks and smoke and everyone yells their name and they hire women to fawn after these men once they've donned on their tribal war gear. And then once on the field, they proceed to do the highly regimented and liturgical combat procedures as commanded by their chief priest. My favorite chief priest is Pete Carroll. Okay? All of this is done in the name of great mythological deities. This year, the great deity of the eagle will come and pounce on those who are weak and sweep down, whereas the patriots, the great virtuous ones who would defend us from the evil Brits, will stand through their virtue and defeat the evil rule. And all of these symbolic deities are branded on every player, every coach, every fan. This is the clash of the what? The titans. The Greek deities who created Zeus. That's who the titans are. And while all participants cannot afford to aspire to those upper echelons, all participants must show up before the television wearing the proper vestments. And you cannot simply clap as politely as in the golf cult or the tennis cult. To be a true participant, you must earnestly hope with your whole heart for victory and disdain the enemy, those cheater patriots, and frequent standing and yelling and backstraining are the ritualized gestures of this combat. And mid-service, there is a great festival of fertility as the chief priests of the fertility god, Janet Jackson, and Justin Timberlake come and gesticulate for the honor of sex and children. We love ritual. We love it. Oh, we love it. We love liturgy. And why is all this done? It's sport. And sport, by the way, is good and right. Sport is good and right. It's fun. It's about strategy. It's about strength. And if you love those things, it's really the, basically the same thing as Settlers of Catan. It's just live people, okay? But don't think, also, there's nothing, no, nothing else here. It's social bonding. It's a way to belong with each other. And so don't think, I don't like watching the Super Bowl or that my boys and I won't be disheartened if we can't watch it somewhere. But that helps us see something. While the Super Bowl might be about sport and social bonding, we can't get those things from it without participating in it. 
You can't watch the highlight reel and say, hey, great time. That was glorious. The joy and power comes from experiencing it together. It comes from experiencing it in your body with each other. And that's the same for us, friends. You cannot get the benefit of our worship, our liturgy, without participating in it fully. There are things that happen in our liturgy that you cannot simply mentally assent to. There's no such thing as a cyber Thanksgiving. Internet weddings have no legal weight, and so it is with all of our rituals and liturgies. Your whole person has to be present. So why does God choose to give Israel this order of prayer and worship? Well, there's a couple things. First is that um, there are things we come to know about God through participating, through chewing bread, through watching each other, that we can't know without doing it. There's also things that get exposed in us. There's days I don't want to be here. And those things are exposed the moment I show up. There are things that happen to me by simply being a part of what God is doing. But the other thing is to notice that this is actually part of God's forming and maturing us. I don't know if you notice this. Look at verse 14. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Being here, going through this order of worship is actually meant to provoke questions in us like the son in this passage. It's actually meant to open us up to a deeper understanding of what's happening. So we could say, oh, why do we do this? Because Jesus found me. I, yeah, that's what this whole thing's about. He has found me. But liturgy also honors God. It takes him seriously. Now, I don't know if you watch uh, the fine literature of The Simpsons. Uh, it was one of my favorite shows growing up. Uh, there's an a, a episode where Homer, who's the ultimate doofus husband, uh, buys for his wife a bowling ball for her birthday gift, which she's like, you know, this scrawny lady, she can't bowl. And on it has his name inscribed. <laughs> It's the ultimate doofus thing to do because clearly he's just imposing his desires on her. He hasn't known her. She hasn't shaped him. There's a temptation to do that in worship, isn't there? Well, we want to worship the God that we think should be like this, this, and this. Well, what if actually worship is meant to be a place where we are taught and led and shaped by who God is? But the other thing is that liturgy honors us. It recognizes our need outside guidance for input. Friends, we need grace. This is God's ministry to us. And so we're actually designed to look outside of ourselves and feed on things spiritually. That's who we are. And our hearts will grow cold without much help. And so as much as sports are fun, and we, we also have to admit that the liturgy of the Super Bowl tells us a very different story about who we are. The liturgy of the Super Bowl tells the American dream. Work hard, get recognized, get rich, become powerful. My heart is drawn to that. I am wooed easily by those stories. And so actually what God does through this service is he calls us to remember, to come back into who we really are. Look at verse 3. Remember 
this day. Remembering means all these activities. Remembering always has a sense of active, active participation. So as we actually participate, as you stand and sit and listen and do various things, you are actually being reminded of who you are, who God is, where you belong, and where you're going. And so what is liturgy? This is our second point. Look at verse 5. When Yahweh brings you into the land, da, 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 you shall keep this service. You shall keep this service. So let me just offer a definition to you. Liturgy is God's ordinary work through a structured story in his community, which I embrace. It's God's ordinary work through a structured story in his community, which I embrace. So it's God's work. We're going to hit these real quick. God's work, it's his action, his power is at the center. Let me just read a few of these verses. Let me just encourage you to let these wash over you. Verse 3, by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. Verse 5, when Yahweh brings you into the land. Verse 8, you shall tell your son on that day it is because of what Yahweh did. Verse 9, for with a strong hand, Yahweh has brought you out of Egypt. And so on and so forth. God is the one doing the work. And yet he does it in an entirely ordinary way. It's very ordinary. Verse 10. You shall keep this statute from year to year. It forms part of the yearly routine. It's a routine. And the same thing for the prayers commanded in Deuteronomy 6. God shapes their entire calendar and liturgy around these liturgies and routines because they will not always have the pillar of cloud and fire. That is to say, the pillar of cloud and fire gets them to the land, and then what? Well, then they live the ordinary life of the people of God. But it's also given because liturgies and routines actually form us. They shape what we love. I have a serious coffee ritual in the morning. There's no vestments or anything, but um, I love coffee. But that routine, actually, every morning... It doesn't, it's not just because I love coffee. It actually reinforces and reminds me why I love coffee. It tells me every morning, you should love this. And that's because there's this structured story to the whole thing. It tells us who we are. Let me just read a few of these uh, verses from 12, 12 through 13. Follow along with me if you would. You shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with the lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Why? What's that about? Well, look at verses 14 and 15. When in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. What story does this tell? The Lord owns me. The Lord redeemed me. I was a slave and the Lord saved me. This animal is going to die in my place. That is to say, this story tells us the gospel. 
And in fact, you rehearse it year by year. And so there's this set time, set sacrifice, prescribed response, even a profession of faith. This is what the Lord did for me in a teaching time. It's their story and it reminds them that they are people who God has saved. And it orients them to their whole life. But it's also, we have to recognize, a structured story. Liturgy is so much like a dance. This is Lewis's, C.S. Lewis's picture. You don't fiddle with dances because then you worry about what the steps are. To learn a dance, you learn all the steps. You memorize them. But why? You memorize the dance so you can focus on the one you're dancing with. So you can give yourself more wholeheartedly. The other thing to see is that this happens in community. I, I, I want you to know when you read your Bibles, whenever you see the word you, Y-O-U, you should assume it actually says y'all. Okay? There's a bias against the South in, among Bible translators. They don't put y'all in there. But I want you to know that the Bible, 90% of the time, is talking to y'all. It's a rare time when it's you. And so verse 3 should really read, Remember this day in which y'all came out of slavery. <laughs> Thanks, Griff. <laughs> Every time we worship, we are with y'all. We are with God's people across the world. I don't know if you know this, but we close out the day on worship. Worship started about 20 hours ago in Japan. God's people have been worshiping him across the entire world. In Russia, in India, in Myanmar, in Africa, in the remnants of the church in Europe, in New York, and finally it makes its way to us, oh Jesus, and we are connected with this entire group of people. And more than that, we are part of millions down through the centuries who have worshipped the Lord, who have not stopped to worship him in heaven. So every time I open my mouth and I praise the Lord, there are millions, there are millions who are right now worshiping the Lord along with us. We can't see it. We can't see it, but being part of this liturgy, this story tells us, no, 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 no. This is not just me. I am joined. I am joined to God's people. Hughes Oliphant Old is a um, great uh, scholar. He's written about worship a lot, and he tells a story of a Presbyterian liturgist leading a highly innovative, innovative service, a, a liturgy that doesn't really follow the order. And after the service, he asked this woman who was part of his class, she was a uh, an Orthodox Egyptian woman, part of the Orthodox church there. And he asked her what she thought. And he says, she shook her head and said, the liturgy can only come from many tears. The liturgy can only come from many tears. He says, she understood what the liturgy really is. It is participation in a fellowship of suffering and joy that has gone on for centuries. This is not just about us, is it? And that's the other piece, though, is that we are called to embrace. We are called to fill our hearts with the Lord and pour ourselves out. In fact, I say this a lot when we come to the confession of sin. I say, please use this bold prayer as a springboard for your own devotion. That is to say, the liturgy is the guardrails. It's the springboard to call us into the thing that we're really the Lord's welcoming us to do, to engage with him. But I think if we're honest, there's a real temptation to actually use liturgy to hide from the Lord, isn't there? 
I would love it if we had more people breaking a sweat and straining their backs in worship. Right? Uh, We're tempted to use worship to hide ourselves from God, from each other, instead of pouring them out. But maybe you'd expect me to say that. You know, Daniel, you're a fairly passionate guy. You're moving to Africa. You're not the normal fellow. I want you to know, though, that my impassioned heart uh, is not a personality trait. Uh, This is not how I've always been. It's not because I binged on spiritual caffeine one morning. Jesus has set my heart free. And so I want you to know that the heart that is set free is always, always, always been set free by soaking in the bath of God's grace every day. Beginning with God's grace, slowly prying loose the many fears that encrust us and keep us from the risk of faith. And so what freedom I have to expose my passions here and with you guys is entirely due to the regular diet of God's kindness and God's grace in my life through weekly liturgies and through the daily time with him. It's really not that fantastic, but the Lord has done good things. And so how tragic would it be for us then to use the very means of freeing us to love him to actually run away from him and further callous our hearts and convince us that we have it together. Oh, Jesus, have mercy on us. And that's why I love verse 8. Let me read it to you. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me. For me. When I came out of Egypt. I love that. God has done things for me. He has seen me. And I meant to embrace this entire thing from the heart. And be so shaped and impacted by what he's doing that now out of my mouth flows his word. That's verse 9. So that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. As Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so I cannot hide behind the liturgy or this community and simply play along. Ritual without heart is the exact opposite of Exodus 13. And so, you know, at CCB, we tell the same story. Jesus has rescued us. He's rescued us. And we were Egyptians. (laughs) And he came and found us. And yet we still often live according to that old story of slavery. And we need continued reminders to live according to his grace. And he gives us reminders that he has loved us and saved us and instructs us. And he puts his word into our hearts And then we stand and respond to him and say, I believe what the Lord has done for me. And then we offer not just our firstborn. We don't offer just a portion of our lives. We give away everything to Jesus because I have been bought with a price. I'm not even my own. Everything now belongs to the Lord. And then he says, come, good, come feed on Jesus at this table and fellowship with each other and fellowship with God and be sent out into the world as ambassadors. Now I know I'm preaching to the choir. You're here. <laughs> You're here, right? I don't need to convince you. You're already here. So what are we after here? 
But we have to ask what liturgy defines our lives. What liturgy defines your life? The question is not, are you liturgical? You are. You are. You're a ritualistic, liturgical worshiper. Praise the Lord. But your mode of living, the way you organize your calendar, tells what you love. It tells what gets first love in your heart. So what story are you telling about yourself? And in your story, who is God? And who are you? And where are you going? And where do you belong? And the best way to answer those questions is with the concrete actions of your life. How do you spend your free time? What distracts you when you should be working? Mountain bike videos, that's mine. Where does your money go? What story does your Google calendar tell about you? Or your daytime or whatever you use? What story does your Instagram account tell about you? What makes your heart sink when it falls apart? What makes you sing and shout when it succeeds? And what do you pay attention to? What has a grip on you? All these things tell a story about you to other people, but it also tells a story back to your own heart. Yeah, that's who I am. That's who I am. Your daily liturgy will order what you love. So, so who gets first dibs on you in the morning? When you get up, do your kids get first dibs? Does your email or your work get first dibs? I just want to say that's a shame. You're so much more than that. You are so much more than someone to be worked or demanded from. No, you are image bearers of God who he has shed his own blood to save. And he waits attentively to meet you and to minister to you. And so what would it be? What would it be to stop starving our souls? I just want to say, if we're honest, this life is hard. Amen? We need encouragement. Oh, Jesus, we need comfort. What would it look like to not starve ourselves, but build our liturgies, build our daily life around the Lord's love for you? Set aside time for him to minister to you, to remind you of who you are and that he's loved you. And I just want to say, when we do that, you're going to find that your heart begins to overflow and your mouth is full of his words for others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. Father, Spirit, you have saved us and we confess that we are weak and you know it. You're a compassionate Father. You know our frame. And so we pray, Lord, that you would reshape us according to your word, that our lives would look more and more like people who have been loved by Jesus. So, Lord, would you um, give us a longing to be shaped, a longing to reevaluate our lives, but also a hunger to know you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.